Now, um, we are on Acts 8, and there's 28 chapters in, a, in Acts. So I'm trying to figure out, every time I think I'm going to do two chapters, I've gotten away with it once. I'm going to try to, to move this along without giving up quality. And so I thought, well, today I might do it. I couldn't. I just could not go through Acts chapter 8 and then go through chapter 9 and give you the quality. So tonight we're just going to go through 8, and we're going to get the quality. We're going to get the meat that is on the bone. Amen? Amen. Now, last time we ended with the martyrdom of Stephen. And a young man standing there who was likely one of Stephen's chief persecutors, if not the chief persecutor, by the name of Saul. Now, first we're going to see in chapter 8 that Stephen's message and martyrdom releases a, a fierce persecution against the church. His message is what did it. I mean, he, 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 what, he scalped them. He scalped the Sanhedrin. He said, you killed the Lord of life. You killed the Messiah. You murdered. And not only that, but all of your fathers have murdered the prophets sent before, uh, sent before him and so on and so forth. And he just scalded them with the truth. And it released persecution. Now, starting at chapter 8, verse 1, we read, Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed put in Jerusalem. But many of the other preachers and lay people, they were scattered. So notice that chapter 8, verse 1 begins with a second mention of Saul, who had looked with approval on the murder of Stephen. But he didn't see it as murder because religion had blinded his eyes. Remember when Jesus said, the day is going to come when they'll kill you thinking they're doing me a service or God a service, not me, but God a service. Remember that? Religion had blinded Saul's eyes. He would later write, I obtained mercy because I did what I did ignorantly. 1 Timothy 1.13. Now, as I've often said, religion without the Spirit of God is the cruelest force on earth. I'd rather be turned over to a pack of hell's angels than a pack of religious people who don't know God. The Holy Spirit describes the outbreak of persecution as a great persecution. The result was that it scattered the believers throughout Judea and it scattered them into Samaria, which, now folks, this struck me. This is where Jesus had told them to go in the first place in Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So they had not gone where Jesus had originally in Acts 1.8 told them to go. So I would contend that the church, having not really branched out like the Lord told them to, God used persecution to send them where they should have gone on their own. And here's an application for us tonight. If you don't do what the Lord has told you to do, he has a way of getting you there anyway. Amen? Amen. And it may not be pleasant. He knows how to put a fire underneath you and get you out of your lazy boy, turning the TV off and getting into the prayer room. He knows how to do it. So it's better to obey right off the bat. Now, meanwhile, devout men buried Stephen. Verse 2, devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him. And of course they wept. 
a great champion had been taken, and they knew it. And, you know, when the church loses somebody strong and effective, when we lose somebody like that, uh, a great vacuum is left. We feel it. You know, I've often thought when Billy Graham finally goes home, I don't know about you, but I'm going to feel it because he, he was such a conscience for the nation. Well, he's been called the conscience of America and America's pastor, preached all these decades, and now his son, William Franklin. But um, Billy Graham, I believe, was raised up as a prophet to America. If you look at some of his earlier messages, you look at the black and white videos taken of him in the late 40s and the 50s and 60s, and that man's prophesying to America. So you take a Billy Graham when he's gone, I'm going to feel it. And I'm going to hope that somebody is there to take his place. So first we see the magnitude of the persecution. And next we have the manner of the persecution. Verse 3, as for Saul, look what he did. He made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Folks, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the man that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Look what he's doing. I, I don't want you to pass it. Look what he's doing. He made havoc of the church. He went into every Christian house, dragged off. Now, the the Holy Spirit does not use words wrongly. When it says he's dragging them, he is dragging Christians out of their homes in chains, dragging them into the street, dragging them into captivity, dragging them into jail, Saul, committing them to prison. You'll notice with me that after Stephen's message and then his martyrdom with with Saul standing there consenting to his death, now something is, and, and Stephen, don't forget, Stephen said, Lord, don't lay this to their charge. And I told you last week that I believe that opened the door for Saul's salvation. When Stephen prayed for them and said, don't lay this to their charge, I believe the door was open for Saul's conversion. And now look, Saul's gone mad. He is, he, is, he is doubling down on what he was doing before. He confesses as much to us later in his writings, and I want to read them to you because this is out of the man's mouth, what he did. So then I thought to myself, now he's giving a testimony to a king here, and uh, it's, it's later in Acts, I think it's Acts 26, but it says, he, he says, so then I thought to myself, that I had to do many things, hostile notice to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. His target was the name of Jesus. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, Often in all the synagogues, now these next words are chilling to me. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I tried to force them, me, Saul, who later became Paul. I tried to force Christians to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Imagine it. Our Paul, my Paul, I so admire him. But look where he was. And it ought to encourage you. You didn't do this. Some of you are thinking, the Lord can't forgive me. Oh, then, he, then if he can't forgive you, how do you forgive this man? 
because you didn't do this. I don't think you've put anybody in prison. I don't think you've killed anybody. Multiple people. I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. This man was deranged. He had Christian derangement syndrome. I mean, look at that. Furiously, the, the, the guy was blowing steam out of his ears. He, there was fire of hatred in his eyes. Furiously enraged at them, pursuing them, even to foreign cities. I, I don't care, said Saul. I'll leave town. I'll travel. I'll go far and wide to find these people and persecute them, kill them, imprison them. Imagine it. This amazing apostle to the Gentiles once had a hit list of, with Christians' names on it. He entered Christian homes and arrested them. The prisons swelled with Christians torn from family and friend. And they had one word on their lips, Saul. How'd you get here? Saul. Who did this to you? Saul. No wonder when he first got saved, the church wouldn't talk to him. Are you nuts? You're going to bring this man into our midst? Haven't you heard about him? Now, here's what I believe. I can't prove this, but I know he was a normal human being. And I believe that later in his travels, he would meet people he'd made poor. Their faces haunted him. He would find bereaved saints, a husband missing here, a brother, a father missing there, the fruits of the persecution he had led. And I see, I thought this through. Here's this man, he's brilliant. He's a genius intellect. He's a genius intellect, but he thinks he's doing God a service to kill these people. He's out to destroy the name of Jesus. And so I thought this through. He did all these terrible things. So doesn't it make sense that once he was saved, no wonder it's Saul, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 13 on love. No wonder he would give his life for the saints. No wonder he took that beating five times, 39 lashes each time, 195 stripes across his back. No wonder he was the, the apostle of love. Love one another, love one another, for love is of God. Him and John, they were so much alike with their love for the saints. And it just makes psychological as well as spiritual sense to me that, that realizing what he had done, he did everything for the rest of his life to overturn it. So there was the magnitude of the persecution. It, it scattered them everywhere. The manner of the persecution, it was ferocious. And next we see the ministry of the persecution. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, doing what, everybody? Preaching the word. Anytime there is a scattering and preaching the word is the result of it, a good thing has happened. Now, we're watching God turn evil into good. He, we're watching God turn the evil that happened to them for their good and for the good of the world. Finally, the known world of that time experienced the widespread preaching of the gospel that alone could make them righteous before God. Fiery preachers went far and wide preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance. And when I read this today, it set me on fire all over again. Because you can't put out Holy Ghost fire. There's a lot of fires you can put out, but you can't put out Holy Ghost fire. Even if it subsides for a while, it's coming back. Amen? Now, 
So here they are. They're scattered. Judea, Samaria, fiery preachers going all over where they should have gone in the first place, preaching the gospel. And next, the Holy Spirit pulls in tight, homes in on a revival preached by yet another deacon out of the seven chosen, Philip. Man, I tell you, they chose well. Because first we got Stephen, now we got Philip. And all of you deacons in here, any of you that are deacons in here, this ought to fire you up. Listen, look at what God did with the first deacons. They rocked the world. I'll take it this far. If Stephen hadn't been killed, he would have done what Paul ended up doing. Now, look at verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and who did he preach? Christ. Everybody say it again. Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, I want to just point out that Philip preached Christ and him alone, reminding me of Paul's words where Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Today in the doctor's office, I was talking about Jesus. I just started talking about Jesus. He, he was confused about the difference between Islam and Christianity. Now, he was not Islamic, but he was confused. So you know what I did? I went straight to Jesus. And I said, Jesus never told his followers to do violence to anybody. And that's the difference. When people have done violence in the name of Jesus, they haven't done it according to the teaching of Jesus. But when a Muslim does violence in the name of Muhammad, he's doing what Muhammad said to do. There's a difference. So I preach Jesus. By the way, when I was done, we've been in there a long time. When I open up the door to leave, three nurses are hanging around right outside. Seriously, right outside. Like, what in the world? You coming out, Doc? Are you okay? He was captive of the Holy Ghost. Uh, seriously, they were right there, and they heard every word. I, they, it was almost like I opened the door, and they, oh, hallelujah. Yeah. I love it. The name of Jesus is so powerful. You got to know when you witness in his name, there's an anointing on you. There's a power on you. There's a grace on you. It's not just Pastor Jeff because I'm up here as a pastor for a full-time gig. It's on you. Stephen was just a deacon. Philip was just a deacon. And look what they did. Then secondly, there were signs following Philip's preaching, which we talked about last time. The crowd heard something first. They heard Philip tell the wonderful story of the Lord who came from glory, who died upon the cruel tree that we might have redemption through his blood. And then they saw miracles. The seeing followed the hearing, and it always does. Demons came out of people, and the paralyzed and the crippled were healed to confirm the word. And the result was absolute joy. The Bible says great joy. If it had been okay joy, it would have said just joy. But it was overpowering and great. It's going to put in there great. The Holy Ghost doesn't waste words. Great joy took over the entire city. Now, the word 
but at the beginning of verse 9 spoils this picture for just a little bit. Everywhere there was love, joy, peace, repentance, revival, rebirth, everywhere but in the life of one sinister individual, and we're going to read about him right now. Verse 9, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was somebody great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest. Now, I want you to catch that. How many people gave heed to this sorcerer in the city of Samaria? All of them. The whole city was bewitched. The whole city was under a spell that was satanic. Philip walked right into a shackled, bound, demonized, satanized city and opened his mouth and started preaching Jesus. Now, no wonder demons... Well, let me finish. Uh... This man, it said, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a very long time. So they've been under the grip of Satanism for a long time. No wonder demons were coming out of so many of the Samaritans. No wonder. For this sorcerer, Simon, had practiced witchcraft among them and open their souls to the dark powers of the occult. Now, let me talk to you seriously about something for a moment. People in our day, and I don't know how it could possibly be, but do you know there's a big slice of the church that doesn't even believe that the devil is real? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've read about them in uh, Barna's, the, the polls that Barna has taken of the churches, and, and there was this huge percentage that doubted the reality of a real devil. But Jesus said there was a real devil, and he called him the father of lies, and he came to steal, kill, and destroy. He, and Jesus said, I came to destroy him. The Bible says that Jesus went about everywhere healing those who were oppressed of the devil. The New Testament attests over and over again to the reality of a real personality called the devil and his legion of helpers called demons who rebelled with him Way back before the world was created, they rebelled with Lucifer, one-third of them, and were cast to the ground, cast to the as a disembodied spirit, and former angels became demons. Satan was already fallen when Eve was approached by him. He was already judged, already fallen, and I don't believe... It was an actual snake that walked up to her, that crawled up to her. I don't believe that. I I believe that it's telling us that Satan was snake-like, serpentine in the way that he moved, in the way he came. If you know anything about snakes, I don't want to gross you ladies out, but I've studied, uh, uh, I I used to love herpetology, and, and, and I've studied snakes, and I know how they approach, and they approach very, very slowly so that their, their victim doesn't, doesn't even perceive their movement. And when they get just close enough, just close enough where they can tell they're in striking distance, bam, and it's over. I believe it's telling us that the devil was serpent-like. He approached her subtly. That's what the Bible says in, he, in Genesis. He's more subtle, more crafty than all the beasts of the field. He approached slowly. 
And when he could tell that he could make a successful strike, he hit. But to say there's no devil is stupid. I mean, what are you going to do with the rest of your Bible? Throw it out? It's not speaking metaphorically. It's not mythology. Now, I say all that to say, I've had people actually ask me questions like, uh, you know, what about a Ouija board in my house? Or what about certain statues of, of um, Middle, Eastern, um, um, Middle Eastern deities that have nothing to do with God, Buddhas and these various things? But what about them being in my house? All I can tell you is this. We see right here that a city that had come under the spell of a sorcerer who had real spiritual power. Because look what it says. He had, they had heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. He was performing signs. He was performing wonders. And so will the Antichrist and the false prophet. And that's why we need to realize there's nothing new under the sun. The day is going to come when Antichrist, with his sidekick, the false prophet, is going to perform supernatural signs and wonders. And the same thing is going to happen, but not just to a city, to the whole world. They are going to come under the spell of Antichrist and the false prophet. A supernatural, demonic spell. So if you've got figurines like that in your house, occult books, anything like that, man, I'd get rid of those things so quick. Because they do bring with them a presence. They do. Man, I got so many Bibles, used Bibles. I got Bibles that if I open them up, the, the, the pages come falling out. I've got Bibles and Christian books everywhere. But if I knew there was an occult book anywhere in my house, I'd get it out. The only one like that I've got is the, the Quran, and I've got that so I can read it and know what I'm talking about. But things bring presences. Things bring Darkness, they bring oppression. So Philip starts preaching Jesus, and there is this incredible citywide deliverance. And the preaching of Philip caused the Samaritans to forsake the sorcerer, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And as they turned to Christ, the powers of hell were broken. Simon lost his grip on them, and joy replaced satanic bondage. Jesus said, if you're going to set a household free, you've got to bind the strong man first. And then you can set the people inside the house free. You know, there are homes all over this Fort Worth area, Burleson, Fort Worth, DFW, homes everywhere, oppressed by the devil, that if somebody would go in there and minister Jesus, it would break that power. We see it happen every week. Now, next we see Simon the sorcerer turning just a tad, but his faith is shallow at best, for he's more impressed with the miracles than with the gospel of repentance. Verse 13, then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, look what was amazing him. And he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Jesus wasn't amazing him. The signs were amazing him. And what was he used to doing with those that he had in bondage all those years, signs, miracles, supernatural things. So this is what's captivating him. Not what the signs were intended to point to. 
Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hold that thought. We'll come back to Simon in a moment. But news of this incredible revival, because this was incredible, this whole city came to Christ. Now reaches Simon Peter and the apostles. Look at verse 14. And when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, the heavyweights. Because this is prior to Paul. So Peter and John were the biggest of the big. And as they should have, the two chief apostles went to check out what had happened in Samaria. And Philip phased the background for just a little bit as the two men prayed for the new believers. Look at verse 15. Who, when they had come down, Peter and John prayed for them. Now, folks, remember the whole city that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, folks, fell upon these new believers in power, similar to the Pentecost outpouring. Now, I got to go here because the text implies it. So let me go here for a minute. Were they saved before they laid hands on them that they received the Holy Spirit? Yes. Because it says, no man can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Spirit. So they were saved first by the Spirit. Then they went and got baptized in Jesus' name. But then Peter and John laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Well, they already had the Holy Spirit. So what did they receive? They received the power of the Holy Spirit. You can call it a second touch. You can call it baptized in the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Ghost. But let's don't worry about semantics. It happened. They were saved, but they pray they received the Holy Spirit. So I think a Pentecostal outpouring fell upon them, and they were anointed with great power. Now, standing to the side, watching all this, was Simon the sorcerer. And all his life, he had dabbled with forbidden mysteries, seeking the deep things of Satan, hankering after power conferred by the spirits, the evil spirits, And seeing this new kind of power flowing from the Holy Holy Spirit, Simon wanted it. Look at verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, uh uh-oh, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I laid my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. If only he had seen Simon Peter a few chapters earlier saying to a couple, named Ananias and Sapphira, you lied to the Holy Ghost, see you in heaven. And they dropped dead. He didn't realize who he was talking to. He said, I want to to buy this gift. Simon offered money for the gift of God. Why did he do it? Because he saw a gold mine of opportunity for himself if only he could give to people the power of the Holy Spirit as had the apostles. He was thinking, ka-ching, 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 if I could have this power. Now, for the record, if you want to go back in church history to the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church practiced the sale of the various church offices, like a bishop or a cardinal. If you want to be a bishop or a cardinal in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, then you would slap down enough money for it and they would anoint you and appoint you and you would buy your way into that office. And that came to be called simony after Simon the sorcerer. 
But my Bible tells me you can't buy it. You've got to be appointed by God, the Holy Spirit, because he anoints everyone that he calls. And he, and he places every member into the body as it pleases him. So in this one act, Simon gave himself away and incurred the wrath of God through Peter. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, your money perished with you because you have thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Oof. Now, I want to go back to verse 20 for a minute. Your money perished with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Folks, that happens a lot in our day right now. And I I mentioned it Sunday in my message on giving. There is a a type of fundraising that happens in the church. It happens a lot on Christian TV. Happens a lot in churches where really, if we're not careful, we'll come to believe that if I'm going to get blessed, if I'm going to be healed, if I'm going to have a prayer answered, if God's going to do anything in my life, I've got to give some money. Sow the seed. You got to sow a seed for this and sow a seed for that. You can even hear the ultra ridiculous on some of what passes as Christian TV, where you hear things like, send in $32 and you'll have 32 days of blessing. Hallelujah, glory to God. <laughs> send in $63. Oh, it's upon me right now. The Holy Ghost is telling me, send in $63 and you're going to have 63 days of breakthrough. Hallelujah, glory to God. Everybody give them. And, they, and, and listen, I was watching one one time when the one that was saying this had on a hairpiece and it fell sideways. And, and he had to get them off, get the camera off of me. And I heard him say this, hit that clap button. And you hear this canned clapping. Listen, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. And I told you Sunday. Now, I believe in giving. I told you Sunday that Kathy and I always tithe. And, of course, I still do. I mean, from the time we were married 40 years ago, when we had nothing, we tithe. We tithe. But I don't believe I would have been cursed by God if I hadn't tithed. Now, that's sacrilegious in some circles, but that's Malachi 3. That's not New Testament. I don't see where any of of the apostles brought that over in the New Testament and said, tithe, you must tithe or you're going to be cursed. Not Paul, Peter, James, John, or Jude, the writers of the New Testament. They never said it. But what they did say is give, and they taught giving. And what they ended up giving was far over and above 10%. Because it was grace-driven, not mandate-driven. But see, this struck me when I read it because we hear it so often these days. And it's, you know, when you hear something like give $63 and you're going to be 63 days blessed, you can just, how do you spell scam? S-C-A-M. It's a scam. Don't be stupid. Please don't. Don't. 
Don't look at me so serious. I just don't want to see you get scammed. Now, can you give to something you see God blessing? Of course. And will God bless you? Yes, he will. But it may not be with financial uh, return. It may be with things money can't buy. I'll never tell you, give 100, God will give you 1,000. Or give 100, God will give you 200. You give 100 to our church, I don't know how God's going to bless you. But I know he's going to bless you. But I can't go with this stuff. It's so... You thought the gift of God could be... Listen, if you didn't have a penny and you said, Jesus, I need your provision in my life. I need a job. He'll answer that prayer. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And it doesn't go on to say, after you have sown a seed. It just says, ask. Hitherto you've asked nothing in my name. Ask that your joy may be full. We need to wake up. You know what made Luther so mad? Martin Luther, where the the Methodist church came from, or the Lutheran church came from, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Wesley. The Lutheran church came from Luther, of course, and there he was, um, and he trailblazed the Reformation of the Middle Ages. Now, what made him so mad was the, the Catholic church, I'm just telling you the truth, this is just history, the Catholic church was wanting to build these great big institutions, these great big huge buildings. So they were going, how are we going to get money to build these things? So they said, here's what we'll do. We'll send out our ambassadors to go into these little hamlets and villages and towns throughout Germany and and the rest of Europe. And we'll send men who are very skilled at teaching the reality of purgatory. Purgatory is the teaching that you don't go straight to heaven when you die, but you've got to go into a purgatory, which is sort of a a place where you're going to pay for some of your sins. Until you've paid for them, you're not going to get out. And when you have paid for some of your sins once in purgatory, then you are sprung from purgatory into heaven. But there is no teaching of purgatory in the Bible. Now, but but these poor villagers, these uneducated villagers didn't know that. So they would go and they would teach purgatory. And, and, you know, these, these villagers had had aunts and uncles die, children die, parents die, spouses die. So the chief, the chief, uh, ambassador was named Johann Tetzel. And he was a golden tongue. And he would go into these little villages and he had a cup. And he would shake the cup when he talked to these poor little villagers. And he would say, As soon as your coins clang and clink into the bottom of this cup, your loved ones are coming out of purgatory. And boy, these little villagers, they would throw those coins into that cup as fast as they could. And as soon as they did, they thought, All right, Grandpa Jones is out. And he's in heaven because I paid him out. It's called the selling of indulgences. That's what it was called, the selling of indulgences. So how did, how did the Catholic Church in those days build these giant cathedrals? By the selling of indulgences was a main way. And that's what made Martin Luther, a little German monk who happened to be brilliant, and God touched him. That's what made him so mad. And it was the force behind him nailing the 95 theses onto the church door in Wittenberg that started the Reformation. But what did it to him? You can't purchase God's blessings. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. See, just talking about that got me to stand up. But but I want you to get it, folks. So are we not, in a way... 
in a way, doing that today, sometimes, when you're told send in 62 and you have 62 days of blessing, I'll tell you what, you send in your 62 and I'll send in nothing. And we'll see if I'm blessed as well. I just want us to understand true New Testament giving. And true New Testament giving comes out of a heart touched by grace, where Jesus, it says, freely you have received, freely give. You know, it's no problem for me to tithe because I'm so thankful for what Jesus did to me. Listen, I'm so thankful. If I had more, I would give more. But he's blessed me in ways that weren't financial at all after all these years of tithing. I'll tell you this. If you give, you cannot escape the blessing. It's going to find you. But don't think God won't bless you if you don't pay for it. That's all I'm trying to say. And I took a lot of time to say it. And when this goes on radio, oh, Jesus, help me. (laughs) Now, look what Simon said in verse 24. We're getting to the end here. Then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things you have spoken may come upon me. And right there in verse 24, we never hear from Simon again. The Holy Spirit leaves Simon the sorcerer here. He wanted prayer from Peter, but he didn't pray to God himself. Hence, he is likely still outside the fold, still in his sins, still Satan's slave in the first century. Like King Agrippa, we leave him almost persuaded. Almost is not good enough. So when they had, when, when Peter and John had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now it would seem from the wording here that Philip accompanied Peter and John back to Jerusalem once the apostles had confirmed the faith of the Samaritan believers. And on the way back, they stopped here and there, thoroughly evangelizing the province of Samaria. And that matters because this is the third phase of world evangelism being accomplished. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria are the three places named by Christ in Acts 1 verse 8, except for the uttermost parts of the world. Well, the first three places now have been hit. So all that remains is the uttermost parts of the world. Now it gets fun. This is one of the most amazing stories in the book of Acts. Next, Philip is summoned by an angel to go and reach a man through whom the pagan Gentile world was now to be contacted. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. Now, I want you to notice something. How the gospel under the Spirit's guidance reaches the three great racial families of Scripture, starting here in chapter 8 and going through to chapter 10. Follow me. This Ethiopian eunuch was a black man, a representative of the race of Ham. In chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, 
a Jew and a representative of the racial family of Shem. And in chapter 10, we have the conversion of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a representative of the racial family of Japheth. Ham, Shem, and Japheth were the three sons of Noah through whom the entire earth was repopulated after the flood. Notice how Acts reveals the three great racial families made one in the family of God. We also know that Christianity came at a very, very early date to Ethiopia and probably through this Ethiopian eunuch that's about to be touched. Now, behind this command from an angel, Mark, it wasn't the Holy Ghost that first spoke to Philip. It was an angel. Behind the angel's guidance and direction was the foreknowledge of God who knew all about the Ethiopian, knew the position he held in his native land, knew why he had come to Jerusalem, knew the deep, unsatisfied hunger of his heart, knew he was on the way home, knew all about his Lexus. I'm sorry, his chariot. I misread it. Suffice it to say, God knows what you drive because he knew all about his chariot. And then it goes on. He knew exactly where he was on the road. He knew what book he was reading. He knew his perplexity and need to understand Scripture. Folks, God knows everything about us. He knows when you're on your way home. He knows what you're listening to. He knows what you're seeing. He knows who you're hanging with. He knows what you're thinking. He does know what you drive. And it says, and sitting in his chariot, he, the eunuch, was just happened to be reading Isaiah, the prophet. Then the spirit, now it's the Holy Spirit talking to Philip, not the angel, said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading. He was reading it out loud, the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I unless somebody guides me? Oh, gosh. Everybody say, God's a God of timing. And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch looked at Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Saying that to a preacher is like putting a T-bone steak in front of a pit bull. <laughs> then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, who did he preach? Let's say it again, Jesus. He didn't preach his own thoughts, theory, supposition, religion, ritual. He preached Jesus. And part of Philip's message to the eunuch had apparently been the need for public confession of the Lord in water baptism. Because it says in verse 36, now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, hey, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, let's all read this together. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this perfectly illustrates the prerequisite faith required before water baptism. 
It's not a religious thing we do. You don't get water baptized or sprinkled as a baby because you don't know what you're doing. It's the second step following placing full faith in Jesus Christ. So it says in verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and he baptized him. Now I want you to keep in mind that this eunuch had a traveling retinue who were with him and witnessed all of this, heard it all, and what was about to take place. Now when they had come out of the water, catch this, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Think about it. Still dripping wet. The eunuch had turned to say something to Philip like, thanks, I I sense God. And he was gone. Vanished. Can you imagine that happening in our baptistry out here? Here's Frank Alfredo putting somebody down. And they came up, thank God. And we're watching on camera. And suddenly, Frank is not. Now, this illustrates, folks, beautifully how God's able to catch up his church. The word for caught away, used in this verse, caught Philip away, the word for caught away is harpazo, harpazo. And it's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, describing the rapture. Same word. What you see happening here is what the rapture is going to look like. Just like that. Somebody's there and suddenly they're not. They're not kindly floating up, waving goodbye to everybody on their way up. No, one second they're there, and in a camera flash, the whole church is gone. Harpazo, caught up, snatched away forcefully is the meaning of the word. But as for Philip, But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now Azotus was the name of the old Philistine city Ashdod, about 20 miles north of Gaza. Faithful Philip preached there and continued all the way up the coastal road, preaching here and there until he reached Caesarea. And here he seems to have settled down. The next time we meet him in Acts 21, 20 years later, He's still there in Caesarea. He's a family man with four grown daughters who are prophetesses following zealously in the footsteps of their faithful dad. Boy, he had some stories to tell them, didn't he? Yeah, honey, there was the time I baptized this Ethiopian eunuch. And and he came up out of that water and suddenly my feet hit the ground in Azotus. And I just kept right on preaching. Can we stand together? Now, next time, boy, don't miss next time, because next time we've got the most incredible conversion in the whole New Testament, the conversion of Saul. Let's thank the Lord. Father, we just thank you tonight. We praise you. Lord, how great is your name. How real are the angels. How real is the Holy Spirit. How real is the power of Jesus' name over demon spirits? How we've learned, how our faith has been built as we've read these stories, Lord. 
Let's just take a second and worship Him.